Welcome to Eight with Eight, a podcast from Ohio State Support Team Eight, where we share what's on our minds and what's in the research from the field of education. We're continuing the season's exploration of educational practices that are mainstays in many schools, even though research may be saying it's time to let them go. This week, we are tackling a big one, behavior charts. This is a practice that may be familiar to many educators and even to some parents, and it can go by a few different names. You might also know them as color charts or clip charts. Regardless of what you call them, they all have one thing in common. They are public displays that indicate the level of behavioral performance for each student in a particular class. Are you having a good day? You're on green. Way to go. Has the teacher needed to give you a lot of reminders today about your behavior? Hmm, you're on yellow. Have you had one or more incidents of challenging behavior today? Yikes, you're on red. Punitive consequences are coming. And so on and so forth. Different schools may use different colors or levels or descriptors of feedback, but you get the idea. Behavior charts have been used for decades as a means of displaying behavioral progress and adherence to classroom rules. But does this practice actually work the way we think it does? How does this practice align to the PBIS framework that so many of us are working to implement? And most importantly, can behavior charts, like some of our previously covered practices, actually backfire and cause more harm than good? Well, today, SST8's own Heidi Kurchensky and Mike Kaschak dive into the research to learn more about why so many schools are ditching the clip. Heidi, let's start with the discussion about four reasons why these practices just don't work. Thanks, Mike. So I get to start with the first one, and that is that these behavioral charts are ineffective in changing class-wide behavior. So it's ineffective in changing behavior because the immediate um, reductions in unwanted behavior may occur for some students, but this is not typically a great strategy to use for students who may struggle, who need additional behavior support. So you always ask yourself the question, who is on red or who's always on red. And if you can list students who are always on red, that should be some pretty good data for you that these the, uh, charts are not being effective for those students. So if those same three kids on red every day, you have to ask yourself, is this really changing their behavior? Probably not. If they're not able to move down or move up, depending on how you have your clip chart organized, it's probably not changing the behavior. So that's the first reason why you really shouldn't use them. They're not effective. Absolutely, Heidi. What you just mentioned really ties into the next reason why behavior charts for all eyes in the classroom to see don't work and are actually harmful. These charts contribute to labeling and stigmatization of students who are the quote unquote frequent flyers or the ones that are always in the red. Students who are regularly clipped or moved in the red zone on that chart can become labeled by their peers as troublemakers. And this type of stigmatization can increase the likelihood of future challenges, leading to exclusionary discipline. And we know that exclusionary discipline does nothing. Right, and that's why PBIS is such a prominent framework, especially in Ohio now, is because we're trying to eliminate those kinds of things. We're trying to use the PBS framework to do that. Right, research shows that this is the effect of these practices, that that students cannot move forward if they're not in the building. It it always boggled my mind. If someone's not succeeding in school, what do we do? We put them out. Right. Doesn't make an ounce of sense. If the majority of students who are clipped are students of color, now we have a bigger problem. 
students with disabilities, if they're being clipped and they lead to exclusionary practices, we're, we're getting in a, a deeper water territory yep. here. It's going to be trouble. So the use of clip charts may be contributing to inequities as as part of the process here. So we need to be very careful of this practice. When kids face the same behavioral interventions over and over again, they begin to develop a negative core belief about themselves. And instead of thinking, I'm having a hard day, or um, is there someone I can talk to? They're thinking, I'm a bad kid and no one likes me. Right, and that leads directly into the next the next item or the next reason why we shouldn't be using them, and that that is kids can face social isolation and symptoms of depression. So when they're clipped all the time and they feel that way, like they're it's not just a hard day that they that no one likes me, this can lead to this depression. Um, these behavior systems are individual, so each child is challenged to get the highest level or earn the most stickers on his own. And if you're a, if you're a student who wants to do well. It's almost like a stigmatization to that student not to hang out with that other kid who's getting all of the, you know, all of the red or all of the negative attention. So it's really not a good practice in, in terms of mental health for students. Um, also, when children feel overwhelmed with consistent consequences for behaviors that they don't know how to fix and lack of uh, adequate peer and adult support in the classroom, they can really develop these symptoms of depression. So I have a personal story when I was a, a student in, in grade school where it wasn't, the teacher wasn't using a clip chart, although we've talked about this, they used to put the names on and put checks by names. They did do that, right, which was right. kind of like a clip chart, right? right. Um, but I remember one time when I came in with semi-muddy shoes and um, we would change classes back and forth and I had been in one classroom and had already changed to the next classroom. And my teacher actually came to my next classroom, dragged me out, made me get on my hands and knees and clean up the, the dried little mud that was under my under my desk. And kind of I had to do it in front of a, an entire different classroom. And I was humiliated. And even though that's not a clip chart, I can tell you to this day, I have a visceral, visceral reaction with even telling that story because I remember how horrible I felt. So you really have to look at what these practices are doing to students, to, to their mental health, because it can really lead to negative self-thought and feelings of depression. And, and like I said, I know that one incident I can recall, I can recall exactly cl with clarity what mm. was happening that day. And like I said, the hair on the back of my neck even kind of stands up to, to remember that incident. Right. Decades later. Decades and, later. And, you know, you spoke just about what happened to you being shamed publicly for the dirt. I also remember incidents where other students, as an as a observer, seeing students being um, shamed in class. Um, I used to think it was called the big dump. It would be the desk check. And back when we were kids, we would have the surface and there was that little cubby underneath. Yep. And the teacher would inspect your desk. And there were always some students that would have a desk that was not tidy. And then the teacher would just take it and push it forward and all the pens and papers, sometimes there would be a waffle and some grapes too, come flying out. Right. And it was shaming to that student. But then as an observer, it was it was like alarming because you would sit there and you'd think to yourself, well, I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah, thank God it's not me. Right. So, you know, it's happening to the person that is being shamed, but the other students in the classroom who are witnessing it, yeah, you know, it, it amps up their anxiety a bit depending on their personality, but okay, I don't want that to happen to me. Or, ooh, you know, we talk about in PBIS having a consistent um, 
predictable, safe, safe. and positive yep. environment. And okay, behavior charts or maybe inspecting desks or you know following through is consistent and uh, predictable for our teacher. But the safe and positive part. How could someone feel that they could go to a teacher and confide in them or share with them any information when they know that they could be publicly shamed in some way or that they're they're willing to do it to someone else? It may not have happened to me yet, but that's what's going to happen. Right. It's almost like that. We talk about that secondary traumatic. It's almost like secondary traumatic stress a little bit because Mm -hmm. you're like you're viewing it and you're you're, like you said, thank God it's not me. I I hope that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Like, don't don't pick on me. Don't Don't pick pick on on me. me. Right. Right. You see that. Um, the other thing about these behavior charts is that they provide attention to behaviors that are unwanted. Um, they may inadvertently increase rates of unwanted behavior instead of decreasing them. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, what, what they do is they accomplish the exact opposite of what they're intending to do by providing class-wide attention for unwanted behavior. So you've, if you have a student who their motivation is to get the attention of others and they know that they can get the attention of others by misbehaving, publicly shaming them or, hey, Heidi, we're going to put you on the red now. Putting you in that situation may add to that, um, hey, Heidi wants that attention. Right. So the next thing you know, they're acting out more and more and more. So that's and another reason we should Exactly. And we know both for, from being in schools that for kids who have adult seeking or any kind of uh, attention-seeking behaviors, that negative attention sometimes, you know, is just as good as positive and sometimes even better, depending. Yeah. So if, if you're directing that attention for everybody to see, that negative attention could get that, that could, it could like feed the function of the behavior when we talk about mm-hmm. students who are seeking attention. Yeah. So what, what really what we want to do is we want to teach the right way. And the clip chart doesn't do that, which is our next reason why not to use them. It doesn't teach what you should do instead. So just putting a child on a clip, uh, clip them on a, on a color is not going to teach them the behavior. What we really have to do is teach them the behavior, which is what we talk about in PBAS all the time. How are we teaching the correct expectation? What do we want the child to do instead? It's not like don't run, it's walk with quiet feet or whatever, whatever the example is. So clip charts don't teach, they just punish. So that's another reason why, you know, don't use them. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, we just touched upon four reasons why we should consider not using behavioral clip charts in the classroom. And as we mentioned earlier, they have been around for a long time. And many teachers have them in their teacher toolkit. So what can be done instead? And um, clip charts recognize and showcase negative behaviors in the classroom and isolate students. So the first alternative that I'm going to offer is that we do the opposite. And you've touched upon this earlier. We do the opposite by recognizing and rewarding positive behavior in the classroom by starting a positive reward system. And, you know, schools are moving towards having school-wide PBIS but the classroom is the space where the teacher is the most. I often think to myself, the most time a student spends in school is with their teachers. Now, for elementary, it could be pretty much the same one or two teachers for the full day. But as we get up in our higher grades, they may switch their teachers here and there, but the majority of the day is spent with teachers. So why wouldn't we start something positive in the classroom, like from the roots up. So, you know, that can manifest in different ways. Um, It could be that we're going to recognize and celebrate positive behavior in this classroom by setting a goal. 
And we're going to reach that goal. And when we get to that goal, we're going to celebrate it. And I caution people not to say, you know, by the end of the week, we want to have zero incidents of cell phone issues in the classroom. Maybe say if we could chalk up 10 days, but that could happen over a month or a week. But if right. we hit that goal, you know, you think about um, having the background of CTE in my um, experience. That's right. We would have labs where um, one of the teachers would emulate what it was like in the workspace and say how many days they went without an accident. Right. So that's similar to that. So yep. we could have that kind of setup in a classroom to reinforce that positive behavior. And, and the prizes, you know, we use the word prizes, they don't have to be um, grand. It could be something simple, like a privilege, or it could be just an opportunity to go outside and get some fresh air. It'll be a day that we spend learning outside, or we, right. we chalk the walk. So a lot of people get confused when they say, you know, oh, a positive behavior system and rewarding and recognizing and recognizing they think is rewarding with something tangible. Yeah, that's nice, but you can do it in different ways. Right, and I think sometimes people think that tangibles are the only option. And there are some students that really are motivated by those tangible items, but you've been doing this work a long time. And, and I know when I go out and, and I do walkthroughs in buildings, I'll ask students, what was the favorite thing that you earned? And generally speaking, they'll say, I got to sit with a peer. I got to be in the teacher's chair. I, um, you know, I got to do an activity with a friend. It's all of the relationship-based, activity-based stuff. So yes, tangibles are important, but a lot of the schools that we're working with are using um, shout-out cards or things that don't, that don't cost anything and they're not tangibles. So I think, you know, really looking at what motivates kids, and a lot of times those are activities. Mm -hmm. So I, I love those ideas, the chalk, the walk, and all those things are really, really great ideas. Another thing that you can do would be point out what students are doing right. That is a really simple strategy that doesn't take any prep and you can do it while you're teaching. Research indicates that you can improve behavior by 80% just by pointing out what someone is doing correctly. And so I think elementary teachers for really for the most part are really good at doing this. I like the way Johnny is sitting. I like the way um, Mary is walking in line. Just by pointing out what somebody's doing right, you can change the behavior of that child, but also everybody within an earshot of that child. So that's a really great strategy that you don't have to you don't have to plan for, put in a lesson plan. You just point out what students are doing right. And yeah. I love that's the first a really easy one to do. Right. And who doesn't like a little affirmation sure. in there? I mean, think about it. You know, I used to sit down at, at, at the dinner table with my family and say, you know, what happened at school today? And you often hear, oh, nothing, <laughs> you know, but if something good happened, like, oh, the teacher today said that I did a really good job on my math test or this, that and the other good words and good praise is always in good taste. Yep. That's how I look at it. And, you know, uh, we know that everything's not rainbows, sunshine, lollipops, unicorns, you know, kids come to school and there might be some things heavy on their shoulders and, or they may have some experiences that are adverse from previous um, experiences in the building. And what, what can happen is that students may have to learn how to self-regulate and the teacher, like I said earlier, they spend the most time with students. They can take the opportunity to really help students navigate and build skills on how to navigate life in general. Right. Um, Students have difficulties such as, you know, um, oh, this, this work is hard. Um, I'm being teased. I'm feeling left out. Um, I have some anxiety with school, and I always go back to kids have school anxiety, and we do not want to contribute to it right. uh, as adults because, you know, we are the adults, and our goal is to help them out. So students identify difficult situations like this work is hard or I'm being teased, and they notice the cues like, 
okay, when this happens, I'm feeling frustrated. I start to get angry. I want to cry. I may want to act out. And you pair the situation, the feelings with how I'm going to behave and what I feel like I'm going to do. And the teacher can go over those situations with the student and teach them how to self-regulate right. and come up with a positive alternative. Like as in, if you feel like you're going to lose it, and I remember I worked with high schoolers, so I would say to students, if you feel that you're going to lose it for whatever reason, just give me this wave yeah. and you're more than welcome to walk out and take a few deep breaths and get back to where you need to be. There's nothing wrong with no. that. You know, removing yourself from the situation or you could do things that are a little more, um, you know, right there in the moment, like through the nose. And, <laughs> yeah, breathing is an evidence-based strategy Absolutely. that everybody should use, not just students, uh, uh, teachers and everybody yeah. so, should use. And, and in teaching that, and you could even teach the class too as a whole, you know, rather than just saying, okay, I'm just going to speak to one student about this. But you could also talk to the whole class about, hey, let's do some breathing exercises to get the mind flowing. And some yep. people might say, well, that seems a little bit much. It's only going to take about 35 to 45 right. seconds to get it done. And the kids are going to remember it. Right. Right. I think that's when we talk about those self-regulation skills, I think that's why things like zones of regulation or the strategy, um, how big is my box, which is how big is my problem, the size of my problem. Um, those strategies are really good for that. Another strategy you can use would be called a take 10 for each learner. That's just setting aside 10 minutes each day to sit with one student, focusing on each of your students in turn. You talk about something non-school related and build that relationship. Another take on this, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, is the two by 10. Two minutes a day for 10 days in a row to build that relationships, relationship with students. But the important thing about these strategies is that you, you find out which what makes each student unique and special, their personal interests, what's, what excites them, what delights them, and it's, it's non-academic. So it's really about building that relationship. You don't, during these conversations, you don't talk about school. You don't talk about anything work-related. You really focus on that relationship. So I think um, take 10 for each learner is great. If you don't have, as much, if you don't have that much time, you could do a two-by-ten. That's two minutes a day for 10 days in a row. I think those are great strategies to use, and, and it's really to build that relationship. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, witnessing things or having things, ex we experienced them directly when it came to discipline in the classroom. And the one thing that I'm also going to suggest is that we keep it off stage, meaning that we need to stop making discipline for poor behavior visible. Students tend to react negatively when they're called out in front of others. So instead, when a student's inappropriate behavior needs to be addressed, have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with the student. Right. Staying calm, being firm, and when possible, avoid publicly calling a student aside for this talk. And we all know that because I even think about working as a principal where I'd walk up to a table and I'd you know, be as subtle as I could be and be like, can I speak with you for a moment? And it could have been about anything. It, right. it, it probably had nothing to do with discipline. And the first thing you'd hear at the table is, ooh, <laughs> you're in trouble. Or working as, as an assistant principal many years ago, knocking on the door and just asking, is Heidi here? Because I had a question, wasn't necessarily disciplinary, but because of the, ooh, you know, right. someone's gonna get in trouble. So doing things, you know, non-publicly as much as possible can eliminate some of that stigmatization that we mentioned earlier. And we talk about, you know, we do not want to humiliate kids. So doing things one-on-one -on -one eliminates that humiliating effect and instead, we invite the student to have a conversation and work with us quietly and ask them to talk with us about, you know, 
what's going on, and then the other students can be engaged. So be calm and supportive, I guess, is bottom line what we're saying here. Yep. And you want to retain that relationship with with students. You know, Mike, we always train you praise in public and then you correct in private. So public, although that's not that doesn't always hold true for kids that might not find praise, you know, reinforcing or embarrassing, but generally praise in public and correct in private is kind of what we say. Right. And I had mentioned earlier that behavior charts, clip charts, are long-standing traditions. And yeah. the one thing we talk about in PBI, PBIS is that it's a change in adult behavior. Right. And so with our podcasts with, you know, why are we still doing that? We are hoping that adults take a moment to look at their behavior and say, why am I still doing that? It's not, it's not just the title of the book that we're covering, but why are we still doing that? But it's a challenge because changing adult behavior especially when it's something you're familiar with, because we talked about being predictable and consistent, positive and safe. Adults like things that are positive, safe, predictable, and that are consistent. So they need to let go and not look at themselves. They need to look at students and see what they need right. with those four areas. So hi, are, there, are there any other additional thoughts you want to share with no, us No, I thought this. I thought all of these reasons why we shouldn't use clip charts were great, and I think some of the alternatives are, are good, but I totally agree with you. Change is hard. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about PBIS as the framework, it is it is an adult-changing beha- uh, framework. It's not about kids. We can't expect kids to change unless we don't change our practices, so I think that was a great way to wrap it up. Right, right. You can't make someone behave. Correct. You can teach them. Right. And that's what we're in the business of doing here. Is teaching. Right. Yep. Heidi, thank you so much. It's been an honor to sit with you to talk to you about this information and, and this book. Um, I really enjoy our conversations that we have. So, for our listeners, if you are still thinking of using or promoting the use of behavior charts in the classroom, just ask yourself this question. How does this approach for addressing student behaviors and issues square with my central purpose as an educator? Take a moment and think about that. So, if you would like to learn or explore more information about what Heidi and I discussed today, we suggest you go to pbis.org and search Ditch the Clip. And that's it for another episode of 8 with 8. We hope this episode has given you some food for thought when it comes to behavior charts. Mike mentioned that the pbis.org website has some great resources around the topic of ditching the clip. We've linked those in our show notes to make them just a bit easier to find. So listeners, your homework assignment is to read up on those resources between now and next week. Just kidding. Of course, there's no homework, especially because next week we will be examining that very practice, homework. Does it still have a place in our everyday teaching practice? When should we assign homework? And for what specific purposes? You know by now we will get into all of that and more. So be sure to join us next week on 8 with 8. See you soon.